Welcome to Tilth Talk Radio. Today we'll be having a special interview episode as we're bringing in Dr. John Gazer from Rock River Labs. And with me today are Max Garvey. What's up, everybody? Todd Schomburg. Hey to all the Tilthies out there. And I'm Matt Brueger, all with Tilth Agronomy. And now, without further ado, we have Dr. John Gazer, Animal Nutrition with Rock River Labs, Inc., down in Watertown, Wisconsin, an adjunct assistant professor of Animal and Dairy Science Department at UW-Madison, and consultant, a consultant with Cows Agree Consulting. John has a background both in agronomy and plant breeding. So welcome, John. Hey, I'm ready to run through a wall now hearing that. Yeah. <laughs> with baseball starting, it reminds me of like... Hell's they, Bells. Yeah, and, yeah. when they... Bring in the relief pitcher, and he can just... I was going to go, here, here comes the big country outfielder, stands 6-4, <laughs> weighs three bills, swings for the fence every time, here he comes. With pitch clock, they can't really play much batting <laughs> right. music for them to come up anymore, so that's got to be... If I would have had this walk-up in high school, I, I probably would have done a little bit better. <laughs> well, I appreciate you guys giving me that walk-up. I mean, this has been a career aspiration for somebody to appropriately introduce me with a little bit of Metallica. So I'll <laughs> there we go. Glad we could make your dreams come true. Have you had a lot of speaking engagements this winter? You know, I, busy? I we we I was lulled into a sense of false reality with COVID, thinking, hey, maybe I've gotten through this speaking engagement thing, and it's taken off a little bit again. So, going to be in Pennsylvania, Texas, California over the next six weeks, hopefully spreading some good agricultural word. Oh, I folks. thought you were going to say you you went to the c word COVID, and then you said spreading something. And you can't, <laughs> no, no, I'm glad it was information. Bad not, bad no. choice. Bad choice no. of words together. He's spreading the gazer. Yeah, yeah. Which, which that's probably more scary than COVID. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all like conferences, that kind of stuff, or just with companies. Yeah, with with, uh, with animal nutritionists. So you yeah. guys you guys are taking a leap of faith here, bringing a nutritionist on board with you for for this episode 180, but. Uh, I'm thrilled at the opportunity. I know we're going to go down some interesting paths today, and we've got so much to learn from you and, uh, and your team on the agronomy <clears throat> side because these interactions from the soil through uh, plant health and agronomic practices through what we then deal with on the, on the animal side, dairy and beef, are big, to say to say the least, and, and I don't think we know very much. I, I don't think we talk enough either. As, no, I, as I would agree. Nutrition, and you guys know, I mean, we. I would say in general we're – very close to nutritionists, we talk to them as much as we can, but that line gets sometimes crossed where we just give them feed, you know, or they yeah, they take what yeah. we give them and got to deal with it, and so you almost feel bad sometimes, like oh my god, this is <laughs> this was not good first, you know, first crop or whatever. I, I really don't want to have to talk to nutritionists for like a month because he's just going to be like, what is this crap? But in general, I say lately with nutritionists they are much better about listening you know talking and not being like hey why'd you give me Good. this junk they're just they're just realize hey weather happens or stuff happens and well i think too goes. we get those questions of like well how's this going to affect the nutritional quality and all this and it's like i'm not a nutritionist it's like that's why you have a nutritionist is so we can have these conversations and it's like instead of asking me like maybe we should all three be sitting down let's and going up. through. Yeah, yeah let's, let's let's figure out what makes sense for the dairy's bottom line. Right. right. As, as a nutritionist, and I hear a lot of times, hey, I want to see this or I want to see that. Well, does that really net us the best in in return per acre? Maybe not. Maybe not. So sitting down as a team with uh, the agronomist, seed consultant, crop consultant, 
and nutritionists. That, that's where our, our dairy producers need to get to. I, agree. I do some of those meetings, and they're always very good. Need to do more. And even, like, in some of them, they'll start to realize, like, what the nutritionist wants is not, like, hey, we're going to cut every 25 days and do this. Right. And then we go through maybe why we can't do that on that particular farm or why we can. And so it is a good way to come to actually an agreement of what what we want to do, what the goal is for the farm. I obviously don't have the uh, years in that you do at this point yet, Todd or Matt, but I've noticed just in the short time that I've been doing this that the meetings have gotten more grouped together. We, yeah. It used to be you met with the farm your, yourself, and then they would play a game of telephone back to the rest of the support staff. And now we're getting meetings where it's the farm manager, the nutritionist, the vet, the banker, the agronomist, the like put it all together, the custom guy. Let's instead of playing a game of telephone and ended up with three different messages going everywhere, let's just kind of blend this when and I that's first, helped. So what you're saying is you don't want to meet the nutritionist accidentally when you're both happen to be at the farm the same day and you're like, Who are you? And yeah. he's like, Who are you? Yeah. And, and those team meetings when I first started doing this, they were usually on farms that were not doing well. Like that's why it got called in. Now I've seen it's like completely flipped and it's on the farms that are doing really well of seeing Yeah, being proactive. Like doing, yeah. yeah. I like the high fives at the meetings. They're a lot more fun <laughs> than the than the, the, the anti high five. I don't know. Is that a finger point as an anti high five? You haven't but gotten into bear hugs yet? No. no. We'll, we'll no. get there. We'll get there. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers <laughs> hug. <laughs> but yeah, those meetings are important for sure. So yeah, John, I think that's valuable here in that's why we're having this conversation is because we have a lot to learn from you in that when the, the founder of our company, Jeff Polinsky, when he started, he actually did agronomy and nutrition work. Mm -hmm. And basically, you know, in the eighties you could do that because you could be a specialist in both because that's where the technology was. And then in the nineties, you know, he said you kind of had to pick an Avenue and he, he went more the agronomy side. And I think mm -hmm. he always just kind of dabbled in nutrition. It wasn't really, that side. So I think that part of it too is we know a very little bit about nutrition. And so it almost gets to be a part where we're almost dangerous about it. Where yeah, well, the little bit we do know, it's like, maybe, is that right? I'm, I'm your counterpart and having yeah. a little bit of background in the ground. Todd, you and I uh, went, went to college together. Too. Yeah. And so we, we've got uh, some pretty good rapport, but we got to know each other through the agronomy. Yeah. John and I go back to you know, BCC Badger Crops Club. Yeah. So it was a good time back in, yeah. back in the day at Madison. You remember the pumpkin sale, John, or not? <laughs> yes. The pumpkin sale? Yes. So they did like a... So a, we earned our money. Yeah. So basically the biggest fundraisers grew a bunch of pumpkins and then stored them in the seed shed and then would sell them at Halloween to like basically to college students, right? I don't yeah. remember. I mean, it wasn't... So you're responsible for a lot of pumpkins being smashed all over State so, Street. Yeah, it was. <laughs> when pumpkins deteriorate, it's just not good. Not good. There was one, and I think you were graduating then because it was... We had one, and I think they stopped doing it after that, but like all the pumpkins started rotting really yeah. bad in the shed, and it was just a total disaster. That's, that's what sticks out to me. Yeah, okay, yeah. so you were there that year. That was just... Well, I remember what, I spent about eight, nine years. I, I mean, some of my buddies true, just yeah, you, rag on me because yeah. I was in school forever. <laughs> well, at least you can say a lot of people go to school for eight years. They're called doctors, so you got <laughs> yeah, that. You are a doctor. <laughs> like, you can say that, so that's yeah. good. And that's when you guys started growing weed then as yeah, the Crops no, Club instead right. of pumpkins. Yeah. That probably would have been more profitable crop at Madison, yes. But nothing nothing too crazy like that. Well, now we're growing hemp, so 
it would have had actually career implications potentially. I have been asked a couple times at career fairs that we go to. There is usually a kid or two who comes up and asks a lot of questions about growing hemp. <laughs> I don't know if you've had these before at the career fairs. Well, they'll get a kid who's like, yeah, well, what about this fertilizer? And I'm like, yeah, I, I get where you're you know going where with this. Going. not here to answer questions like that. And I don't think you should probably sign up for an interview. I think we probably are good. Agronomy 101, 100, whatever, Bill Tracy's class, you yeah. had to grow corn and soybeans yeah. in, like, in your dorm room. And, yeah, like my roommate freshman year, like he claims it was his buddies snuck in something else into my, like, you know, basically I had a weed growing in there that was really It was three sisters, just wasn't corn, bean, <laughs> right. and squash. Yeah. Right, <laughs> so that we had to like change some of that. So, yeah, there was always quite the... Yeah. The, when you say agronomy down at Madison, they don't like... They don't even know what that really means. You know, like, is it like astrology, like in the stars? Like, no, it's not. That's actually what, <laughs> yes. Todd, I don't know if you really hardcore science. Yeah. I don't know if you know this, John, but that's actually the degree that Todd graduated with. Yes. At least as far as the local newspaper News- was concerned. When I graduated, yes, it, like behind my name, it said, it, was it astronomy, astronomy or astrology? astrology? It was astronomy. astronomy. Yeah. It was astronomy. Yeah. Was that the, in the same road, road, I know. Road that I, pony I should hard. look if I even <laughs> still have that little clipping because that would be so good. If you have any questions about constellations, stars, Todd is your guy. Multiple yeah. disciplines. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, sitting sitting here from my perspective, so we we know each other from agronomy from Crops Club in the past, and I, I, I know enough of the language to be dangerous. He spoke before about just knowing a little bit of nutrition from an agronomy perspective, enough to be dangerous. I think that's my perspective, but sitting from a nutritionist angle, I, I, I've I've learned and know enough of agronomy, not not that I would make any sort of recommendations. Although I, I guess I have done that in some cases with regard to plant populations and some other things that I think can improve forage quality and, and uh, performance. But learning from the Tilt team, I mean, taught some of our discussions over the last six to 12 months. I, I've just glommed onto the, the conversations because you've taught me so much. And I think that one of the latest podcasts or, or web events uh, with PDPW Dairy Signal, I learned a tremendous amount from you in, in that session. And we need to continue to foster these discussions, figure out our synergies together because the, the next five to 10 years, uh, you guys been paying attention to margins on the dairy side at all over the last yeah. six weeks. To there, there, there are margins. <clears throat> yeah. It's, it's, it's not real pretty. So dairies did okay over the last couple of years, but uh, the last couple of uh, quarters and in the next quarter may be looking pretty ugly. So we, we need to be figuring out what we can do to help dairies and our producers make great decisions. And it's going to be starting with the, the soil and uh, in, in out in the field in, in just a few weeks. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. John is back in February. If anybody wants to go back, we talk very specific about corn silage, corn silage moisture harvest kind of back and forth on the agronomy versus nutrition stuff that we're sort of seeing out there. And it was really good. They, they have those as podcast versions on PDPW dairy signal. You just got to put like your email in. But when I put my email in, they weren't like spamming me with a bunch of emails mm-hmm. or anything. So it was good. And then they got like a web version and then a, can go watch those, the, those episodes. Yeah, yeah that was, was a really was good, good one. I've forwarded that to a few other people just because Todd's so awesome, and I, I, I finally was alongside somebody I was proud of. <laughs> I just appreciated the invite. <laughs> We're gonna yeah. do more of it. Yeah. Where do you where do you see agriculture going in ten years, John? I mean, you kind of brought up you know in near term here we're gonna have some struggles where things get tight and just but farmers are used to that. But yep. in 10 years, especially specific on nutrition side, is there any sort of big picture things you see that 
How big do you want me to go? I mean, I, I can go globally if, if you'd like. One of the, yeah, let's start there. So I've, I've been with Rockefeller Laboratory for 10 years, and, and before that I did a few years of, of animal nutrition and consulting, and I got to reference my dad, my, my late father. I'm walking in his footsteps. He was a nutritionist, and I actually got the opportunity to work with him for a couple of years after I came out of graduate school. So he, he taught me quite a bit, and, and he helped, frankly, humble me a bit because I came out of grad school after these eight years of, uh, at Madison, and after about six, six and a half, finally quit partying and learned how to actually study and, and earn a couple of degrees. So I got a few degrees behind my name, a few letters, and I thought, hey, I'm, everybody's going to want to hear what I have to say. And I quickly learned in the first 12 months, nobody cared what I had to say. I had to prove myself. So I started getting into some discussion with regard to seed corn and, and uh, agronomic practices or forage management more so around the time of harvest and then thereafter. But dad uh, helped teach me quite a bit, and, and I, I didn't cut it as a nutritionist, so I, I left and joined Rockefeller Laboratory. But coming back to your question, where do I see agriculture going in the last 10 years that I've been with Rock River, in the last five in particular, we've, we've grown, and, and I, I get the opportunity to support producers, agricultural producers, largely dairy and beef, from South America up through North America and, in, and into Europe. And actually, we were just talking last week, Todd uh, had a gentleman up from Australia, uh, we're looking at getting into the Australian market a little bit. So one of my career aspirations is to work alongside really bright folks uh, such as the Tilt team here and improve the profitability of ag, ag businesses. And Rocker has been a great spot to do that because I've, I've been able to learn from a, a, lot, of diff, a lot of others and wor- learn different systems. So where do I see agriculture going? And let's start from a global perspective. United States is where it's at. We're, we're, we are an awesome country. I'm really proud of, of what we've got going, but what we're seeing play out in, in some other countries, some other regions, and, and I, I guess I would, uh, we have to mention sustainability, and, and with some folks, I think that's been maybe a buzzword or, or a little bit uh, perceived negatively, but there's an increasing desire from consumers' perspective for more sustainable practices for, for their, their commodities, milk, meat, cheese, et cetera, to be sustainably sourced, to know where the food's coming from. And if, if anybody's been paying attention to some of the local news, I mean, we've seen what some of the Dutch farmers uh, have been faced with from a, a federal regulation standpoint. And this wasn't anything that we set up to talk about today, but as far as where do I see agricultural uh, trends going, I think there's going to be producers from outside the United States coming into the United States, and, and we're going to be a hotbed uh, in terms of agricultural uh, practices and, and moving the industry forth. And I'm excited about agriculture and, and where we're going. There's going to be consolidation. So if we drill in and, and we look at within the United States, we're going to continue to see consolidation because we are in large part a capitalist society, which I think is awesome. We're, we're driven and, and motivated by uh, financial returns, which we should be. And so we'll talk about that maybe with regards to how we manage uh, the field through the feed bunk. But we're going to see consolidation because margins are tight and negative. And so as we get a little bit bigger, we've got a little bit more leverage in terms of our buying power. And and we can work with some of the best and brightest out there. Hopefully someday I can be one of those. Uh, And and here in the upper Midwest, uh, where I see agriculture going is uh, I hope today we can talk a little bit about uh, crop protection, healthy plants. We're, We're seeing some trends in our corn silage the last couple of years. So a little bit different nutritional characteristics that you know, in 2021 I thought were just sort of an anomaly coming out of the growing season, unique growing season. Well, we saw them again in 2022 
And so uh, I think we're going to see a little bit different corn silage product that we have in our silos and bunkers and piles, et cetera, that, that we're going to be working around. And that's going to create new opportunities, I think, in some other areas. So uh, I'm, I'm excited about where we're at in agriculture. Uh, the demand for animal protein isn't going away. Uh, and if anything, I think it's increasing. And, and I think the United States and, and us in the upper Midwest, where Mother Nature blesses us with uh, adequate moisture to grow our crops and feed our animals, I'm really excited about where we're going. Yeah, you, you said a lot there. <laughs> that was good. Because we are going a lot of places. And I think I like that you started with your background and then work forward to to where we're going. So I think you guys saw that you want to jump on. I did, and I think it kind of plays into the conversation you guys had with PDPW, is with how ever-changing the plant breeding aspect is and how we're, we're looking, uh, from our perspective, agronomic improvements in these corn varieties, are we paying enough attention to the nutritional aspects of, of how we're changing these hybrids to do be drought-tolerant, to be... Um, you know, in some cases more digestible, but are we focusing too much on the agronomics or do you think it's a, a balance? It, it, de- it depends on the, the company and the, the product portfolio. So I, with my consulting hat on, I, I work for uh, a number of different groups that are playing around in, in the, the seed industry or uh, in, in agricultural amendments or agronomic amendments and even biologicals. And so I, if I look back the last 10, 15 years, we, we've got two classes of, of seed genetics in, in conventional corn and then brown midrib corn. So that, that's been brown midrib corn really doesn't have any other application than with forage quality for ruminants. But within the conventional space, we're seeing more emphasis on, and, and I see this a little bit through my Rockover Laboratory channels, seed companies testing their products, testing their inbreds and some of their earlier uh, stages for nutritional quality. And so it's not a huge probably not a huge aspect or a huge portion of their portfolio, but I'm seeing an increased emphasis on evaluating the nutritional characteristics along with the agri- agronomic characteristics. And I, there, there have to be tie-ins. Like, let's talk about what we saw the last couple of years. And I, I'd like to know a little bit more in terms of what you and your team are seeing with regards to the, the seed genetic or the genetic impact on, on crop health in particular, uh, because that, that will have a positive effect, I believe, on the nutritional quality. Yeah, we're seeing stay green that we've never <laughs> seen before. You know, that was always, that's always been a thing in the book that they said stay green, but this stuff's staying green till like harvesting grain if you wanted to. Like, so the implications for silage on that are different. It's it's a very disease resistant, robust plant, and then where our fungicide use is more than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so that too is kind of tying into that so i I mean would you guys agree something john and i have talked at length about but uh these guys know that when we were doing burn downs last fall like i i i was not myself because i had a mental break last yeah like it was (laughs) just one (laughs) chicken little was running around the office the sky is falling because we got rain right as we were going to start chopping yeah and it was like two inches and and i had seen this before where you hit that cliff where all of a sudden it just when the silage is basically it goes from 70% moisture to 60% and you miss your window it tips yep. and guys are mad and we fell off that cliff. So it's like, I knew that would come and it, I don't want to say it never really did come, but the amount where it just held moisture was unbelievable. We nailed our moisture. I, I mean, it was, yeah, um, I mean, we were right where we wanted. I, it. Right. So, so that was good. And I, th- I think that was partly because guys are looking at that more. They're doing, you know, whole plant dry downs. They're looking at, 
Well, they have good teams like Tilt Agronomy, though, and in, in, in helping to manage and, and stay on top of where the fields are at. And not everybody has a tilt. That's a, that's a weird you say that because I think it used to be, too. There is still some nutritionists that do burn downs, too, which is good. Absolutely. Like, yeah. you need sort of that where we kind of meet, but they don't always know what hybrids in what field and, yeah. like, even know where their fields all are. So how are yeah. they supposed to know when it's ready. So that has been a weird thing that agronomists used to be like, well, no, that's the nutritionist problem. Yeah, I was surprised when we were talking about how much work you do on behalf of your clients, and this is something that really resonated with me from because it's more of a consulting relationship as you have to, to guide them where and how to go after their fields or where they send the harvest crew. But you're right. There's a lot of nutritionists that own that responsibility. I, it, I, I don't think that makes sense. I, right. I was wondering what you'd say about that because I don't – when I first started, I would say most of the nutritionists, you know, you'd say it'd be the guy at the feed mill – You'd you'd bring it to Freedom Feed Mill. You'd you'd bring the corn there, yeah, yeah. and he would do it. That was kind of how that relationship was, and then they'd kind of look at it, and it's somewhat morphed into like this. Yeah, like I said, I don't know that it's still perfect yet. Where basically you you talk to the nutritionist, see what moisture they want it at, and then we kind of watch the fields for it. Well, let's let's talk two things. Let's let's talk moisture as a decision making tool with regards to harvest, because we're going to be talking more about this over the next three to six months, how we manage our crop into into cutting corn for silage. But let's also talk about how intensively we're we're managing different aspects of our agribusinesses. And I say agribusinesses and not just the feed quality, because it is an agribusiness, the whole life cycle from the the acre through the cow and back to the acre. And I'll put one more uh, comment out there for for where I see agriculture going in the next 10 years. And and, and here comes a shameless plug. You ready for this? I'm part of a a couple of different programs where we're capturing a lot more nutrition data with all of our feeds, not just farm-grown feeds on farms. And where that's relevant is we're getting a lot more intensive with our management. So we've got to have good insight. We've got to have good data to then make informed decisions. So there's been an absence of nutrition data in general because nutritionists have done a great job for us for decades in helping to improve animal performance. But when I look at the amount of data that nutritionists use, it's maybe a feed sample once a month or every couple of weeks on just the forages. Holy buckets. Is there a lot of opportunity in looking at feed nutrition analysis more frequently? So that's something I'm working on. But to come back to what you and your team have done or in and around harvest, when when you were telling me, Todd, how much you've, you've done in terms of burning, burning down different fields or checking moisture and knowing where each field is at multiple and then doing it over the course of a week, that's awesome insight to help drive that harvest decision. That, I didn't know that, nutritionists were – that's a good – point is like in soil sampling we got to do one sample per five acres that's by dad cap standard and rule for nutrient management i never thought of that from a nutrition standpoint there's no they basically it's well when the feed changes we'll grab another yeah, and reading cows right. yep. yeah, okay and, and there's and that, so much happening sure that, that cows never present to us they're like big buffers i've learned in the last couple of years sure sure the rumen would do that i could imagine yeah mm-hmm. I imagine you chuck stuff in it and it ferments and figures itself out yeah. and yep. well, yeah I, I like what you said too because we talked about this, I remember if it was last week or two weeks ago on the podcast, in terms of planter, like, we can check the planter after they're done planting all day long, but what we're not going to fix anything, right. So, yeah, if we're, I'm, usually when I hear about the, the nutrition side of it, it's after harvest, they finally get into what we collected, and it's like, well, this is kind of crappy. It's like, well, we can't do anything about it now. You have to do, I mean, nutritionally, I guess, on that side, there's things you can maybe do additives or other things, but we can't change how the plant grew. We can plan for next year, but maybe we should be doing more in-season testing. Yeah, more, more proactive and just generate a little bit more data and then 
granted, more data isn't necessarily going to make the world better, but figuring out how to use that information and make more informed decisions and driving decisions. I, I, I like what I'm hearing from your team on, on making informed decisions, especially around harvest and getting into moisture. But it's not, you know, our feed quality is not strictly moisture. So we were nailing moisture the last couple of years, but sure. the feed quality is still dramatically different the last couple of years relative to what we've seen in the last five, ten. Do you think there's certain just growing season things that are better to work? Like, is that a thing that these guys just, oh, well, the 2022 crop fed really well? Yeah. Is it, do you think, like, what percentage would you put on is, is environmental or weather related versus actual what that farm did? Yeah. So probably 50 to 65%. Look at me pulling that precise number up. 65, <laughs> maybe, maybe 50 to 68.3% is mother nature. So certainly the, the GDDs are, are heat units and then moisture when our moisture falls, uh, looking at some of Joe Lauer's data as of, uh, maybe three to six months ago, he, he summarized some of his plot data from the last 20 to 30 years where, where he brought in and was looking at the environment and, and he sort of segmented, uh, he looked at wet years and he looked at dry years, and he looked at warm years, and then he looked at cool years. And, and what he found is he was just looking at forage quality in general, and there's a lot that goes into forage quality. But he, he, he was seeing that hot, wet years drive forage quality down quite a bit. So we might have great grain yield, but the, those plants grow like trees. I mean, okay. it's, just, it's like tree bark, lignified. That and makes sense from an agronomy standpoint. Those are the ones where, oh, this is good. The, the yields are good. This looks sweet, but, it's, but you're, you're making wood out there. Not. Yeah, and I, I think moisture has more to do than, than maybe even the heat units, uh, looking at Joe's data, talking to some others. And this is an area we still stand to gain quite a bit. So maybe we can have Derek do some research here with, uh, with the research side, looking at different, um, irrigation and I don't know that we can control mother nature in the heat units, but there's still a lot to learn. That's good to know that, that moisture does have more because I, I didn't know which side, I mean, we know heat drives some of those things from an agronomic standpoint, especially and moisture does, but I could see where moisture, if, too much, too little, that plant grows very differently. Yeah. And now we have these genetics built in that it, when it is dry, these plants basically stop mm-hmm. growing, which, and then they got to restart after they get some moisture. Well, from a forage quality stand, you know, when you're just putting on, you know, number two corn to go down to the mill, that's, that's great. Yeah. But from a forage quality standpoint, I could see where that would, and, would and I think it's that. the, I don't think I'm, I know it's the moisture in the vegetative state. So after after we tassel, after we start getting into grain fill, that forage quality, that that fiber care, the fiber characteristics aren't going to move a whole lot. But I think around V five, V seven, just the amount of moisture we have, how much moisture that is in the soil that plant has to to work with, it, that's going to imprint that plant with regards to fiber digestibility and forage quality. But coming back to some of the, the stay green that you talked about before, we are seeing at the laboratory pretty good fiber quality this past year, which came out of a growing season where I wouldn't necessarily have predicted it. But I think some of it has to do with the stay green and the healthier plants and the fun, fungicide uh, adoption where we just have greener tissue and not, not this deader uh, brown tissue that we've seen with, with a lot of past year's corn silage. I've been able to watch the as corn is being chopped, right? We're around. We watch, we watch the chopper go. I'm still a little kid. I just like watching horsepower move feed, right? But the just if you want to s- simplify it, the color that comes out of the spout is greener than it was four years ago, but we're still making feed at the right moisture, which tells you, like you're saying, we're not harvesting that dead tissue, but it's still working out the way we want it to, which is a crazy thought. Like... To see the difference is kind of 
I don't know. You used to see that trail coming out of the, you know, that real dry stuff that would just blow out the back, right, basically. Yeah. yeah. And most of it would hopefully make it in. But again, you probably didn't want that stuff in there anyway. But we're not seeing that as much, but, I would agree. So anecdotally, we're seeing that. But then it well, is nice to hear the labs got data that sort of shows that mm-hmm. as well. And we're changing how we, we view the plant at harvest time. You know, the old adage that we talked about of, well, when it's half milk line, it's ready to go. And that hasn't necessarily been true for the last few years either. Not at all. Uh, the visual cues are different. So we're changing how we're managing silage on a data-driven side, which is good, but I think it's harder to get farms to maybe adopt that. Because they'll look at it and say, well, it's not ready, it's too green, or you know, get, getting that communication to the farm, I think having both sides representing that is going to help these farms better manage their crops. So I want to come back to Max. You, you, you can see the greenness to this. Yeah, so the gre- I mean, like when, you, when I say that, I mean... A couple years ago, even if you saw a if you saw a stream of feed coming out of the chute that was that color green, you could look on the ground and see the starch running behind the truck. Yeah, right. Yep. We're not seeing that, so we're getting this we're getting this beautiful green color going in the into the chopper box or into the semi, and then it's testing right where we want it to. So we've seen that shift in that stay green where we're getting the moisture we want without having to harvest brown corn and todd do you remember what you got through my thick skull and I, I, I this resonated with me so i've said it several times over including at a couple of talks but how what are we doing with that moisture where, where is that ending up where we the bottom of the stalk that part or where well no. we, you, you where talked we about going? how that we've got <laughs> I don't even remember. We, we've got green those green plants the stalks are holding more moisture but we've got a little bit more advanced drier grain, grain right? Do you, right do you remember what you'd said the 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 grain is soaking up that moisture right what well what we're seeing is you got that dry starch mm-hmm. and when you mix that together with almost like imagine imagine you got corn starch like a you know a box of corn starch and you got a wet sponge and that's what we're combining yeah. now to make our corn silages because of where this moisture is ending up. Yeah. And so, I don't know if that's good or bad. I, we it's different. It, it it's different. Right yeah. Word. Yeah. Instead of having oh, a uniform like, hey, the whole plant is at the right moisture, we now have something that's probably too dry and something that's probably too wet. And when you put them together, that's, that's we're getting so the, well said, Max. That's so well said. And and when I when we saw this in twenty one, I saw that our moisture's were okay, but our starch digestibility, which is the hardness, right? We we're seeing less digestible starch in some of our lab tests, and that's become a focal point in in rumen and dairy nutrition because we don't just feed for a certain amount of grain in the diets anymore we've gotten a little bit more precise and we can actually feed for the amount of digestible starch if you can believe Mm. that that's something we're formulating on and so as we have less digestible starch in our corn silage we're having to push harder and push higher grain levels to get to the same level of digestible starch think about it like uh, if if you got a really crappy fuel economy, so I, I drive a beautiful Ram, right? And I just got an eco diesel a couple of months ago, so my fuel economy is great. But when you balance fuel economy with tank size, you, you kind of get to your destination at maybe a similar level. I can get there with less fuel, so I need less less of a tank. Maybe my analogy is kind of falling apart here, but we're doing something similar in dairy nutrition. And this this gr- harder, drier grain, more advanced grain in terms of where the milk lines at this past year, I, I don't see this changing based on our discussions. And this is going to be a new factor for us to consider in our management strategy, because even as we sit right now, I don't think corn silage from last year is still feeding to its full potential, even though it's had what, six, eight months. Is it really? In it's the still, silo? Yeah. So, I mean, so you're seeing, basically what you're saying is that grain starch is still becoming more digestible over time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, and I think it'll keep rolling into 
May, June, wow. July. But it, for in our very, in my little lack of knowledge of that, they basically always said you have the six months carryover to sort of solve that. And so yeah. you're basically saying you might even six to nine. You, you maybe might at say this point longer that right. you still sure. see that. So in general, this is a good thing because we've got that greener, healthier plant, maybe less in ear and stalk rot, and, and then the mycotoxins that may come along with that. So I love what we're seeing from a forage quality standpoint, but it's netting out to be, or, or we need a little bit more advanced grain, a little bit drier grain. Uh, and, and, and however you phrased it before, that, that super wet and, and, and overly dry corn that we're now putting together for our silage that's that's coming out at 65. I think that 65 moisture, 35 dry matter, that's still going to be our harvest cue on what we want to hit in the silo. But it's a different product, different product. Different levers to pull to make it work, right? I mean, yeah. you're, just cha- you're just moving the moving the needle or moving the goalpost would be the way to put it, I guess. From, from an agronomy standpoint, it's huge. We're going to gain a ton to a ton and a half. Just from that, basically, say, instead of being a quarter to half milk line to being a full milk to almost three-quarter milk, the amount of tonnage we're going to gain as well is unbelievable. So that's actually a really good thing, too, from a, you know, from a sort of agronomy standpoint that that is good. Would, is there any other management stuff, you, you know, cutting higher, changing? Because I think cutting height then, you know, like we said, if all that moisture is in the bottom part of the stalk... Yeah. Cutting height's very important. Um, I know that too. Like when I'm grabbing dry nose, I ask the guy, like, what is what are you gonna cut at? Because if I cut if I go out there and cut it at six inch or eight and you come out and chop at twelve, uh, yeah, our moisture's are gonna be way different. So anyway, is there any other like practical thing you've seen that is helping not helping from a, a silage quality standpoint, I mean, really to my knowledge, all we can do to manage for silage quality, and, and here's where we stand to learn a lot more from from your team and from agronomists. But yes, cut height, and and I, three to five years ago, before we were at the point where like we're discussing now, where we had the bottom twelve to eighteen inches of that plant dead brown material, raising that cutter cut height up would would improve our fiber digestibility. And then we would have a higher grain to stover ratio, so we'd have a net increase in in the energy value per ton. But Today, I don't know that we need to do that. You're if right. we've got green all the way down, why leave that digestible yield out in the okay. field? And this this is going to be something that our, uh, you know, we need to consider plant height and, and just sta- stature because if we've got, what, five, six-foot tall stalks out in the field and our, our tonnage is going to be off 15 20%, who cares about cut height? Like, I mean, let's, right. let's just Go about the ground going, then, yeah, yeah. Take, take dirt and get some tonnage. Yeah. But, yeah. That's a, there's a um, bear is coming out with they're calling it smart corn with a shorter corn mm-hmm. we thought it'd be just a complete grain play like i didn't even i like almost like didn't even ask the question about silage and the cal rep basically brought up that it is going to be a silage play which somewhat i don't want to say shocked me but at the we always talk we need tall corn for silage well we don't we want we we want thick corn we want bigger stalks mm-hmm. is really what we want so anyway, as as that comes out, it'll be interesting to see because that is going to be. I don't know. Have you heard of this yet? Yeah, Just push yeah. for shorter corn. What, yeah. what I'll say, we want for for the dairy and beef producers' benefit is we want, I'll say, optimal digestible yield per acre or maximum digestible yield per acre for the the minimum economic input. So okay. whether it be short torn, or short corn, tall corn, I don't care. But we we want to be harvesting as much energy per acre as we can at the best cost. I'm going to give you a chance here to hit on your buzzword that you talked about before, sustainability. Um, this is a, 
I don't want to say personal crusade, but a little bit for me, I've been on this for a while now, is that sustainability, everybody talks about it and it becomes a buzzword because we make it about environmental sustainability, which is important, but there's a financial sustainability for the farm and those two words have to those two instances probably have to be put together a little more. Do you want to, you care to take a nutritionist stab at, at sustainability? I know obviously, right, we can't buy $15,000 of the inputs to make $8,000 of the milk. That's not sustainable, right? Yeah, we're going to turn this podcast into episode 781, 782. <laughs> yeah. how, much, how much uh leash are you going to give me? I just, you, you said buzzword, and you're right. It is a, it's a buzzword. Yeah, so I'm going to give you your chance here to, to we, hit your buzzword. We have to embrace that, right? So I, I put a couple of articles out in hordes, and if you follow my Feeding Fundamentals column, it's been a blast. I'm, I'm humbled at the opportunity to take conversations like this and, and, and craft articles around different things and sustainability uh, and, and uh, environmental stewardship is, is a big one. And it's one that thanks to some of the work that I've, I've done and consulting with, with the Syngenta team, I, I thought it was a little bit voodoo and I was kind of holding it at arm's length a few years ago, but I've, I've embraced this, I'll say scientific area. And there, there's a lot of, it's coming from the consumers. They're, they're just driving us. But if we're not, considering uh, in, environmental impact in, in our management practices, we, we've got to take a hard look in the mirror and, and think about what we're doing. But to your point, we've got uh, economic sustainability, environmental sustainability, and those effectively can be and should be one and the same. Because when I look at it from a nutritionist perspective, and so uh, carbon and methane emissions has is, is been a really hot topic as of late. So our, our, unfortunately, there, there are some uh, governments throughout the world that, that are uh, placing restrictions upon farmers for nitrogenous and carbon emissions and methane and, and such. But when I look at uh, dairy profitability, one thing we'll talk about is feed conversion efficiency. So getting the most output relative to the, the feed the animals consume. And it is one and the same with uh, environmental sustainability or, or, or greenhouse gas emissions. Methane is CH4. It's carbon and four hydrogens. Taking you back to, to college here, right? With a little bit of biochemistry. But what, what goes into milk is carbons and hydrogens and, I mean, organic molecules. So if we do a good job in putting up high-quality feed and we optimize output relative to input through our dairy cows or beef cattle, that's also going to be more environmentally sustainable. I mean, dry matter intake relative to production are, are, are two big factors in predict, predicting methane emissions. So uh, if, if we produce more with less inputs, we're then in turn going to be more profitable as well. So in general, some of the strategies and technologies we're looking at out there to uh, lessen our greenhouse gas footprint and our emissions uh, footprint are also going to be profitable for us because we will be improving feed conversion efficiency. That's well said. Yeah, I've, I've I had a lot of practice. That's exactly good. the answer I was hoping no, you would that like. Was great. Not those words, but that's exactly the direction I was hoping you'd go. So great job on that question. And I think this is a good point both Max and John bring up of the profitability part is important because I've seen firsthand producers that the not profitable ones usually aren't making decisions based on the environment. They're making decisions based on to just save the farm at that point. Yeah. On a family farm that their <laughs> great great grandpa right. owned that that if they lose the farm, there's a lot more, you know, that basically they're the ones that lost the farm and the whole family knows it. So anyway, are those people making good environmental decisions? Not at all. Usually right. they're making it to save the line. So we do want to keep these farms efficient, profitable. And I think from a milk standpoint, that makes a lot of sense that you want these, these cows, the more efficient the cow is, the more sustainable that cow is. Mm -hmm. too. So, and, yeah. it, and it starts at an acre of ground. 
I mean, it, it starts yeah. with our cover crop uh, and, and our, our soil management practices, and, and then we can cr- create great quality feed, very highly digestible feed, that then we can be more efficient through cows. So that whole life cycle, there, there are big opportunities for us, and I know it's going to net us as, as dairy producers, our bottom line. I, I think we can probably find another dollar per hundredweight in margin opportunities when we're doing and finding some of the right technologies that are also uh, work toward environmental sustainability. I think that's something we've seen with another buzzword, the soil health, because you mentioned the health of the soil, the cover cropping, that kind of thing, is bringing all those aspects together and not treating them exclusively. Like being sustainable doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing one practice and not another. Sometimes it's a whole system that has Mm -hmm. to bring in different aspects and, and you have to kind of monitor more things. So it's a higher level management. And I think that's something that, in what we've been talking about is another aspect that we don't necessarily think about as we go down this road is it is an intensive management system. It's not just the old, well, it's in the silo, we're going to feed it, call it a day. Yeah, when we look at tuning up, uh, let's say we're going to tune it a, a truck, and, and it's it may be exhaust modifications, it may be intake modifications, it might be something with the computer uh, to, to optimize our efficiency and our performance, e- either more horsepower for our, our, our pulling on the weekend, uh, or you know we could say the same thing from a tractor standpoint if we're tuning our tractors, or just getting further on a, on a tank of fuel. The same, the same sort of, to analogize to, uh, what we might do in our, our practices on farm, maybe a little bit at the soil level, a little bit at the crop level, a little bit at the in the in the diet with the nutrition, and, and then the net outcome is is just a really profitable agribusiness, or that that's the direction we need to take. And so coming back to bringing agronomists and nutritionists together, we need to team up to discussing, uh, to be discussing and talking about some of the different fine tuning that we can do in different aspects of our agribusinesses and and seek seek synergies toward that optimization goal. You, you mentioned uh, some, some of the soil health. So I, I spent five to eight years uh, in, in graduate school studying ruminant nutrition. A lot of that is microbiology within the rumen where we, we don't know a whole lot. A, lot. a lot of it's just experience. And then the last 10, 15 years, I've been practicing that out in, in the industry. But as, as we've learned more about the microbiology within the rumen and how we can tweak and, and modify or improve what we get out of the rumen, can the same be said at the soil level? I mean, how much do we well, understand about our soil microbiology? Well, I think that's where we're where <laughs> uh, we're going really good now. Question. Yeah, no, if we, you, and we act like we know something, and I think it's so laughable how little. I just we say it with confidence. Know. Oh yeah. my God. Right. Well, it's, it's just, it is. It's you know, synergy, sustainability. Those are all things that get talked about with soil health, and, and I think we know some, but we we don't know. We're at the tip of the iceberg where that comes down. And I think what's interesting is from a human health perspective, the big push has been nutrient density and that soil, healthier soil produces better quality nutrients in the foods we eat. So there's no reason to think that if that is true, that it, it wouldn't carry over to cattle. So I think that's part of the, the mysticism of this whole thing is it's going to make our cattle healthier. Like you said, more energy per acre. We're taking and doing more with less in some ways. Yeah, so coming back to where are we going in the next 10 years, hopefully driving driving decisions with better data, but then looking at and adopting new technologies, very sustainable technologies and practices to net us out. I think the biggest soil health thing that we've seen is not necessarily on the nutrition side, but it's the just getting into the fields and having the ability to 
manage the crops on time. We talked about silage and moisture and how we hit our moistures and having a bigger bigger window helps, but also being able to get in the field. Yeah, we want that soil to have structure. Structure, right. And, and that soil structure will hold up your chopper so that you can go go in there maybe when, you know, it's a little bit wet, yeah, but it still can hold it. Where, and then getting that water to infiltrate and things like that. Well, so, and yeah, the water part is what comes in with the moisture. Then you're holding moisture your water holding capacity is better in that soil so you could manage different weather scenarios easier because your soil is more resilient. And I think that's... This is fascinating. I mean, you guys have my attention. <laughs> I, I just feel like I'm back in a really exciting class in, in some level. I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more. I like where you went with the biology of the rumen because what we are seeing biologicals just from a... And a lot of them are similar to basically like they're inoculants that mm-hmm. you'd put on a feed. Right. Um, they're di- they're different, but they're the same. But it's know, the same, same companies the same that are companies, pr- producing same, the feed inoculants yeah, are are well, going to this biological side. Yeah, it's your so, soil probiotic a, at yes. this point. Yeah. Do, is there any? Have you seen anything? You know, you you guys are years ahead of us on that side. Is there anything like you would say does trickle down to the soil side? Not really. Is there anything we got to be worried about putting on the soil that? could have a downward effect of causing some biology to, to get out of whack is I don't. So I don't think from a, from like a bacterial inoculant for silage or, or some of the probiotics we're putting in the rumen or, or bacilli that we're putting in the rumen for different purposes or into the diet. I don't think we're going to be looking at any negative ramifications. Now, granted, if we're feeding bacilli, some of those spores can be pretty hardy, so they would end up in manure. So I guess bacillus subtilis would be something to keep on the horizon. Like, would that be something that could be a negative at the soil? I don't think so. Uh, I, with, with my consulting hat on, I've, I've done a little bit of work in the biological space uh, w- with a client. I've, I've learned quite a bit, but we are seeing an uptick in interest in biologicals as we get away from maybe some other practices. And I, as I think about where we've been in the last 10, 15 years, 30 years, I guess, with bacterial inoculants, we know that as little as one gram of bacterial inoculant can influence a ton of forage. And so I like doing this with an audience, but at least with you guys in the room, grab hold of your, your pinky. And uh, for those of you listening out there, grab hold of your pinky and on the top knuckle, that top knuckle is about a gram. Now think about that volume of just that little bit of bacteria and spread across a ton of forage. We know that that's going to influence the fermentation. That's going to influence the nutritional quality to the benefit where we're going to have more efficient uh, and, and profitable silage. Can we do something similar at the soil level where we might take a gram or a few grams, spread that across, I don't know, fifth an acre or an acre, and can, can we have some sort of impact? I'm thinking so. That's What's, interesting you say that because the weight of the – you always think of the, like, size of the, of the plow layer, I would call it, or, like, the, the soil we're using, you know, the root zone soil. It's very – it's a lot. You, mm-hmm. know, a lot. you know, a ton of soil is, is – what's the way to say it? Like, it wouldn't go very far, and you wouldn't see a ton of soil in, in, in that size. But it's good to know then that – the scales do work because sometimes I feel like we are just like peeing in the ocean. Absolutely. Like, is it going <laughs> to yeah. do anything? Yeah. But maybe that helps analogize that like, especially now a lot of these are being banded near yep. the seed. Yep. So you're not trying or to even affect, seed applied. Right. So right. you're not say affecting that whole plow layer. You're banding it to affect yep. that area right in, you know, in the root zone. Um, and that's good to know that these do have a good chance of actually. I mean, we've put inoculants on alfalfa seed for years. Have we not? Yeah. And, right. And that, yep. that has, an effect. Right. And so now we're, we're looking at, that's a good way. Soybeans have been, you know, like yeah. inoculants are not brand new. The, the amount 
of new ones coming out now, and the push to it is very new to us. Well, the pro- the promises are different too, right? The yeah. Uh, broken promises at times but the promises <laughs> yeah, are right, different right i think what fascinates me about the biological side at least what i've seen in the last year here is and i don't know if it translates to the the rumen side and that biology but we're doing some of the same things for the plant with multiple products but where they operate in the plant is different hmm. so we've got some that are creating a vesicle in the in the plant to grow some that are in the rhizosphere and you know, is, does placement matter that much within the plant, or is it? Are we adequately feeding it, no matter which one we use? And I, I don't know if you've seen that. And we're, we're probably at a place. What it sounds like is it would would be equivalent to where we were at twenty twenty five years ago in animal nutrition. So it, I, I would encourage your team and, and the audience listening in to to pay attention and start testing and trying some of these different things. But I can't speak with confidence to a lot of things. My my wife will tell you that, but certainly <laughs> certainly not with biologicals either. I, I just have a little bit of experience. I've seen some statistical differences in feed quality with one of my clients. Uh, so very intriguing, pretty fascinating. But as far as how, what, what organisms, where they have an effect, I don't know. The feed quality one's a very good point. Is we can do a lot of a lot of these are just looking at tonnage, right? Or yield, but if they affect feed quality at even the min- smallest amount and have no effect on tonnage, absolutely, they'd be huge. Absolutely. So yeah. I, I think that especially with where corn this, prices are at, I mean, right. six to eight dollars a bushel of corn. If we can net out a little bit increase in starch content in our silage, that can go a long ways. Yeah. So I, I like that part of that, John. Is I think we're we are definitely probably twenty years behind in that we're just in where we're just like throwing these. But at look at it, look at it as opportunities, right? To make right. to make a little bit of investment or to, to look to generate some data. Don't just do one feed test here and I'll put a shameless plug in for Rock River Laboratory. I mean do some good testing through one of your commercial forage labs out there and Rock River does great work. But uh, don't just do one feed test. If you run a strip or strip trial or split fields, don't just do one. Do at least three to five samples because okay. there's a lot of noise in, in those samples from the field. So match that up with your, your yield measure. We're even seeing in the biological data side, um, you got to do a lot more replications. Mm-hmm. So that part of it too, yeah. it, it's just, it's not, um, there's a lot of noise yeah. there. So yeah, that is a good point that even from a feed side, it's, it's not just do a side by side and did it work, you know, two samples, yes or no. It's, it's, you're saying we got to have a little bit more robust data. Yeah. And, and we're, we're talking about testing biologicals, but I think coming back to just a more aggressive management plan. And one thing that I'm also recommending is, is dairies not only look at, uh, and beef producers or growers look at biologicals, but also take that up, up a level to other agronomic practices. Uh, fungicides are also uh, seed genetics, yeah. running plots, taking ownership of evaluating your different agronomic practices, your different seed, seed options and looking at yield quality, figuring out which ones are going to, going to give us the best energy yield per acre grown on farm. We got great information coming from, uh, our, our providers from our, our, uh, seed companies, but I'm seeing the, the forward thinking, dairies and feed yards those that are that really want to go and find the best seed or the best approach for for their business running their own replicated plots and i I think you your team has a little bit of expertise in that space and it's been pretty impressive to see what we can get done uh from dairies or or uh with independent plots yeah derek's been running our plots with that doing a great job and want to harken back to one of your hordes articles from january 9th of this year just making data-driven decisions for seed corn really good article Kind of explaining that there, even just think of the scale that we're putting these sort of hybrids out there, and we do need data on these farms. Absolutely. And to go way back, I mean, we used to do it through WAPAC, and 
there was all these other avenues and some of that sort of changed throughout the stream, but I still think having that part of it and having the quality part is not, you know, we're, we're missing that, you know, we'll get pickup based on yield and, but sometimes you could afford a little bit yield if you're getting that quality part. There, to there's it. too many dollars on the line for us to not have a concrete and firm understanding of what both our yield and quality are on our farm or with some different seed options. Uh, and and I've, I've gone through this a couple of times over the last five years, this, this economic evaluation. Five years ago, for every 500 cows, it was about $250,000 that we had sunk into our silage by the time it's under plastic. Today, anybody want to guess? We're looking at three fifty to five hundred thousand dollars invested okay. into our silage for every five hundred cows we have on feed for a typical Midwestern or Western diet, and that is a pile of coin that I think we can do a little bit better in in managing that investment. I, yeah, I would agree with you. <laughs> we don't look, we don't look at numbers that way very like no, very often, and we probably are missing something by not viewing no, them that way. That way, right? Yeah, it's rolled up at the end of the year. I mean, that's that, it, they're incurred in seed costs and and uh, chemi- chemicals and, and inputs and and harvest at, at the end of the year. But but when we look at the the annual investment, easily three hundred fifty to five hundred thousand dollars in economic value for every five hundred cows on on the farm after it's under plastic. And we, on the agronomy side, because we work with both guys that are just sort of cash crop and dairy guys, our main business is dairy. But on the cash crop side, all those guys got to look at is the yield monitor at right. the end of the day. They don't care. They don't care about any, you know, test Pretty weight maybe matters. But I just do think on the dairy side, we are missing that part of like this whole digestibility side from an agronomy standpoint of of doing things on your farm, you know, whether it's hopefully replicated trials, but then some strip trials and just... Yeah, and look at it as an opportunity, right, to make more informed decisions in in an area where we can carve out more profitability. Being able to build teams around dairies, I think, is being increasingly important every year because it takes so many different point of views to make sure we're getting the whole picture. It's too... We're we're too specialized to understand the whole picture now because everybody is so focused on their part of the dairy that having these teams is every year seems to become a little bit more important we'll look at and teams that communicate very soon That's here the, when they start planting we'll only be where we'll, we'll have sort of you know a hundred percent on like okay let's get this in the ground and do blinders or and tunnel vision yeah both yeah and and then it'll be you know weed control and, and obviously those all have <clears throat> nutritional ramifications but at the end of the thing they could. I, think, I think we're not looking at Sort we forget bigger. to worry about nutrition until about September 15th <laughs> right. when we start making right. silage, right? I mean, right. at the end of the day, that's really what it, what happens is right. we make all these decisions because it's agronomic-based. And then we get to the end of the year and we go, oh, yeah, that's right. There is other parts to this. And I think maybe we need to be more conscious, but I don't know what we're going to do necessarily. If we need to kill weeds, we need to kill weeds. So, well, I think, like Todd mentioned before, that we've seen this moving in this direction of the team idea and looking at how you're going to manage the whole farm, not just I'm the crop guy, I'm going to manage the field, I'm the cow guy, I'm going to manage the cow. We've, we've seen that in family farms and where one brother takes one of each and, oh, I'm not, a, I'm not the crop guy. But sometimes you got to be a little bit the crop guy and a little bit the dairy guy just so and that we, you're and we making don't connections. all need to be sitting around a table either right. to be an effective team. Right. We've got all sorts of different communication channels, whether it be a, a group chat or text chat or, or something like Telegram, where, where, where we just have the key members of our team, where, where we can have that open discussion and not dialogue with you know two people at a time. And I think it's okay to uh, 
I, I, I had a farm actually explain it to me this way, and I, I thought it was a pretty good explanation is all, everybody who's working here together needs to stay in their lane, but the highway all needs to go to the same place. Well said. Which yep. I was like, okay, that's actually that's a really good, good analogy. Yeah. Like, I don't need to play nutritionist, but as long as we're all going to the same place, it's going to work out mm-hmm. okay. We can merge lanes every once in a while. I like know? that because I do feel like 15 years ago, that's how, like, if I'd step out of line and was like, dude, stay in your, like... Give me better feed. Stop getting me this crap. Yeah. And then now it's all like it's gotten to be where we just sort of were, though. Like we weren't even going. We were on separate highways. You like, were going to Madison. He was going yeah, to Portage. You know, it was like, one of those I'll deals. I'll do my thing. You do your thing. We'll, we'll both do a really good job at it. And we're not, you know, it's it's not necessarily. It's actually less contentious than it used to be, to be honest. Like, And maybe that was because I was brand new starting out. But when I first started, I mean... Some nutritionists just, I mean, they'd literally like yell at me, like, what are you doing? This is junk. Why are you giving me this feed? You know, whatever, whatever. And it is not like that anymore. I don't, when you're starting out, Max, was any of them like that? Yeah, I mean, it's different. You got to remember, like, there's still, I got to be careful how I say this, but there's still the good old boys club of nutritionists and agronomists. And that's probably not going to change till some of those guys retire, honestly. Like, they have their ways. They're not going to change. And that's okay, right? Yeah. But the more. The more guys that are seeing the, the the vision or seeing the light, I don't know how you exactly want to put it, that see that this is a total management perspective, the more I feel like it's easier. But I did uh, when I started. Yeah, and so you're gonna have here, here's the other thing. When you start, and you talked about it before, and you, you talked about it extensively, when you're a, a young, dumb kid just out of college and all you do know how to do is read a book, which maybe isn't true, you, you may have more knowledge than that, you are fighting an uphill battle right away. And I, I'm still young enough that... Yeah, you're still. I mean, I know I got a. I've looked like I'm 40 since I was 16, but I'm still young, and people still, you know, at times you get put on the back burner or ignored a little bit because you're young. And what do you know? You don't have 25 years experience, and that's. I think that's more part of the deal with the whole stay in your lane thing than it is. You get an automatic pass when you got 25 years in. Like you can make poor choices, and it's like, oh, it's okay. Like he's he's experienced. Well, that's part of just having a track record of hopefully doing making a lot of good decisions, so you can. Maybe make some that aren't, you know, I'm not saying you'd want to, but have that where you got a little bit of leeway where they cut you. Your margins get bigger. Well, a little bit, but there is that. I've seen it too, where you get about 10 years in with working guys and you got to recreate yourself too as an agronomist or nutritionist that, 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 that you're not old hat. Right. Yeah. It, well, we've done, you know, oh, we're stay into, hungry, be, be yeah, willing to try different yeah. things, learn. Cause I've had that too. Well, you know, it worked last year. We'll do the same thing. Well, okay. But what else, what else can we do to make it? It's where the better? synergy part comes in of, the guy that was yelling at you 15 years ago probably didn't even think about the, and I'm, I'm going to misquote your statistic because 80% of statistics are made up. But, <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, that 60% that's weather, we have no control right, over. Right. And for me to get mad at a nutritionist or them to get mad at me over something that was weather-related yeah. that we had no control over is make, make them feel better that day, but isn't really conducive to a good working environment right. and not going to help the farm's bottom line. Right. Todd, you and I have had this conversation before talking about soil health and cover crops and some of that kind of stuff. And in the way it's worked, worked through is, you know, you and Bill and Nate and Matt, you guys didn't come up as cover crops being a, a mainstay, right? I did. It's been, it's right, been we, a big deal from when I started. Us, yeah. So as hard as you try to understand it or be part of it or do it, you always, you were, I don't know, you were brought up in a different era. So it is always going to be. I don't want to say contentious with that. There's a hesitation. But There's hesitation, a hesitation or yeah. it's not the only way you know, right? That's the only way I know is that this is a mainstay. This is important because when I started, it was already a big was deal. A big, yeah. 
so it's just working through those different generational gaps and and different upbringings or you know they're used you know you meet guys that were consultants in louisiana and they moved up here and now they're consultants in wisconsin and it's different right and trying to melt all those together can be um tenuous or or sometimes contentious or okay. contentious is the word you used before but okay boomer yeah right <laughs> you, you talked about yourself as being a, a what 30 something year old I'm dumb. Tw- 26 oh goodness 26 yeah <laughs> oh Todd. well I'm, I'm i consider myself a middle-aged dumb kid still at this point being being 15 uh years out of college 18 19 years i guess todd since yeah not not to date us but i'm going to do that anyways put it put it back to 2004 or 5 but uh, did Wando's even exist when you guys graduated? Oh, oh goodness, Wando's. here we go. Wando's yeah. was there, yes, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. But well, coming back to staying hungry and staying motivated, I mean, so you guys got me all amped up with uh, a little bit of Metallica. Uh, don't tread on me to, to walk walk in today. Uh, being part of this discussion, hearing about some of the ideas, concepts that you're working on, I could break this table like a WWE superstar right now because I'm excited about where we are going as I'm getting into my, my mid-40s. So I, this is fantastic. And, and this type of team chemistry, team atmosphere, this is what hopefully we're going to be driving forward for our listeners and, and hoping to give some people ideas to think about with how they're managing their agribusinesses. Yeah, all right. I, I think that's a great place to wrap this up. And yeah, we I think we all want to stay hungry and stay up to date on everything and this kind of collaboration is only going to make that easier. So good. Thank you, John. Um, all our listeners out there, I just want to say, please subscribe to the podcast. Tell a farmer friend. That's all we ask. Just, we need to get the word out there about subscribing. All you need to do search tilt talk radio and Apple podcasts or on Android. We like a couple different apps, podcast addict, Podbean, or player FM. You can also listen on your computer or smartphone browser. Go to tilthag.com slash podcast, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Tilth Talk Radio. All right. Well, thanks for being here today, John. We appreciate the conversation, and I hope you had a good time. I think we had a great yeah, time. Yeah, we had a good time. Hopefully, you'll yeah have to come back, and we can dive deeper into some of these things. Like Whenever we do interviews, it feels like the first one is like we just kind of nibble at everything and kind of, you know, poke at it and be great to have you back to really get into some more details and some of your things. I want to shout out to for John that people should check out his hordes dairyman articles. They're great. And also hay and forage grower. You said John. Yep. Right. Yeah. And some of those are, are, are just really good um, to, to kind of get an idea of what I like about them, John, they're usually, they're not a huge long read. They're just the right amount of size where you could kind of, you get into enough detail, but they're not, pages long so i don't know how you, you that's, seem, ex, that's just experience okay you yeah you got that sweet spot of that because some of those you know when you read an article sometimes when you look and you're like oh it says continue to page whatever is i don't know if i'm gonna do that part yeah sometimes you gotta read the room <laughs> right. 800 words that's the that's <laughs> 800 sweet spot. Words. That's 800 sweet words. Words. all right all right well thank you guys for being here thanks for having us matt so today we talked to dr john gazer about a number of topics not limited to agronomics and nutrition and how things can hopefully synergize moving forward as they have started to already. So all of you out there, thanks for listening. And as always, happy farming.